Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio. Today we're joined by John Peterson, who's the executive editor of Socialist Revolution, which is the website of Socialist Revolution, organization of the same name, US section of the International Marxist Tendency. John, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. You're our second American guest. You've got a tough act to follow. Tom Trottier did a great job talking about developments in the US labor movements. But I think we're going to waste no time with introductions because it will be no news to anybody listening that it's been an eventful period in the so-called land of the free. The American dream has turned into the American nightmare for millions of people. You've had one chaotic and disastrous event and leader after another. In the last five or six years, you've had the fire and fury of the Trump presidency, you had the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter uh, movements, uh, riots in Capitol Hill, the Ukraine war, attacks on abortion through the abolition of Roe v. Wade. And now, just as we're going to record, more or less, the um, federal government has narrowly avoided uh, full-on defaults by agreeing to a massive austerity package to negotiate a new debt ceiling. So how is it that America, you know, the mightiest capitalist economy, the foremost imperialist power, has become such a cauldron of instability? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think you've outlined a lot of the uh, the main points that we're dealing with, all these, these things that have converged in the last few years that make this such a, frankly, an exciting period for us uh, Marxists in the U.S. It's, uh, we're not demoralized by all this. We're not, obviously, you know, we don't want anybody to suffer. We don't want people to lose their jobs. We don't, you know, inflation affects all of us. But this opens up big possibilities for the ideas and the organization of revolutionary Marxists right here in the belly of the beast. And I think one uh, one figure that really illustrates what's going on here is that shortly after World War II, the United States emerged as the obviously the most powerful imperialist power uh, in the world, and it accounted for roughly 40% of world GDP. Fast forward a few decades, and depending on how you calculate it and whether or not you include you know, the vast black market that's out there in the world, but the official figure now is about 17% of world GDP. So U.S. imperialism was underwritten by the strong foundations of that post-war boom economy, which came to an end in the early 1970s. And ever since then, it's been 50 years, decade after decade of attacks, of austerity, of rollbacks, of concessions, of a, of a lowering quality of life for the vast majority of the working class. And uh, after trying many, many different ways to, to change their situation, working two jobs, three jobs, voting for this politician, that politician, tightening your belt in this way or another, uh, people people are starting to get fed up. And we're starting to see the beginnings of a revival of class struggle in this country in a wave of unionization, in a wave of strikes. It's obviously in its early infancy. 
But uh, very interesting times here in the United States, to say the least. Yeah, and obviously we discussed that on the previous episode, the sleeping giants of the U.S. labor movement beginning to rouse from its uh, from its slumber. But I think that it's worth outlining that it's not just a revival of the class struggle that we're seeing. There's also been a profound crisis of the regime. It seems to me that the American political establishment has never been less trusted. It's never been um, less competent. It's never been less equal to the incredible tasks that face the American ruling class. I think that uh, after Donald Trump was dragged kicking and screaming out of the White House, there were plenty of people around the world who welcomed Joe Biden, this establishment figure, as establishment as they come, as a safe pair of hands, finally, we're going to go back to some normality. But that's not been the case, has it? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, people had big illusions, uh, the, the, uh, you know, illusions combined with, you know, a, a sense of reality. You've got someone who's now 80 years old, he, you know, he, he, he stumbles downstairs, he's incoherent half the time he speaks. And that's the best that the the liberal wing of the of the bourgeoisie could come up with, I think people deep down understood that things weren't kind of you know turn into a, a new golden age or anything like that. But obviously there were there, there was a, a a breath of relief at getting Trump out of the White House. Uh, but the reality has been very, very different. Very little has changed, other than the fact that you've intensified the polarization. You've intensified the use of uh, of, of identity politics to to divide to confuse. Uh, and and you've got this this growing animosity in this country that I think really began this crisis of confidence in the institutions about 50 years ago. You've seen a steady decline ever since then, exactly right about the time that the post-war boom ended. And poll after poll show how this transformation of consciousness is uh, is really dramatic. I mean, we're talking about the the country of the Red Scare of uh, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, you know, the, as you said earlier, the American Dream, and now you've got you know, hundreds of thousands, literally millions of people, young people saying that they think communism is the ideal uh, system for them. And you have other polls that show a, a whole bunch of really interesting uh, things. If I could give you a couple a couple of statistics. And when asked, quote, what is your ideal economic system? 31% of all Americans said socialism. That includes older people, of course. And 20% of young people, that's people aged 18 to 25, they said communism. I mean, so we're talking about uh, a, a massive cohort of people in this country who are wide open to, uh, to to these ideas, basically to the ideas that we put forward in socialist revolution. Um, but some other sort of expressions of the decline, I mean, you know, we, we could give statistics about, you know, depression and alienation and, and drug overdoses and all this kind of stuff. But, the, but there's some other things that are a little more intangible, uh, more related to ideology or, or values, you could say, that I think really illustrate nicely what uh, what's going on in this country. For example, in 1998, the University of Chicago found that 70% of Americans think patriotism is very important. Uh, now, just a few years later, only 38% think patriotism is important. 62% in 1998 thought religion is important. Now it's just 39%. In 1998, 59% thought having children is important. Now it's just 30% of the country that think 
uh, having children is important. And, you know, history shows that when when the good times, when the times are booming, people tend to, you know, re- reproduce like like bunnies, as they say. Uh, when things slow down, when, when perspectives for the future are dim, people people literally say, I don't want to raise a child in, in this world. I don't want to bring a child into this place, if you can even afford it. I mean, it's extremely difficult to find childcare, working mothers, Huge numbers of working mothers, you know, report uh, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, just pain for all of this is is, is more and more difficult. 78% in a, in a more recent poll said that they are not confident that their children's generation is going to have it better than they do. 78%. I mean, that, that, that that's a real dark perspective on the future. And uh, just 1% of Americans in a recent poll said that the state of the economy was, quote unquote, excellent. Just one percent, and I think that really sums up where where people's thinking is at right now. And can we paint a bit of a picture of what life is like for the majority of Americans today? Because obviously, from an international perspective, you think of the richest country in the world, you think of glitz and glamour, you think of Hollywood Boulevard and this sort of thing. But you also, if you dig a little deeper, come across images on social media where people people say, "Oh, look at the state of this." terrible building or this horrible little apartment with barely any amenities no running water they have a terrible existence in venezuela then it says oh no actually that's chicago or that's detroit or that's pittsburgh you see these cities that are literally left to rot totally lacking in investment the infrastructure is crumbling and on top of that um it seems that not a day goes by without news of a new terrible school shooting or or mass shooting where tens or dozens of people have been killed from an outside perspective it looks like the social fabric of america is under greater strain than certainly i can remember yeah no i i mean it's 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 crazy i think it's something like 30 million households in this country are basically falling apart they don't have adequate plumbing or uh, you know waterproof roofs uh doors that close properly etc 30 million households i mean if you, if you figure an average of I don't know, three to five people uh, per household. That's a, that's a lot of people. That's, uh, you know, a, a good chunk of the population. As you said, there's been more than 200 mass shootings in this country in just the first five months of 2023, which is, uh, you know, it, I mean, it obviously is still shocking every time it happens, but, but people are frankly getting a little bit, uh, you know, just numb to it because it happens all the time. And, and it's, it's become a reality of life where children you know, as young as five years old, have to go through active shooter drills in their schools to prepare for someone potentially coming in with an automatic rifle and opening fire on classrooms. Uh, You know, some other things that illustrate this that I I think are also quite shocking for people who have, you know, the Hollywood image of what life is like here. 53 million Americans rely on food banks or other community programs just to eat. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a sixth of the population at least. 21 states recently have passed laws that have, have expanded the use of child labor. Uh, you know, the, a, a recent study found that two-thirds of unaccompanied minors, that's immigrant children who are sent across the border without their parents, two-thirds of them are working. And a lot of them are, you know, in their teens. Uh, even 10-year-olds have been found working overnight shifts in meat packing plants in different uh, in different areas. I mean, th- th- this is real barbarism. When we talk about the choice between socialism or barbarism, uh, r- right here in, you know, the land of milk and honey, that's the reality. Not to mention 
all the police shootings uh, and, and everything that else that's uh, that, that's a, a part of daily life in this country. I would say the biggest part, though, is just the stress of trying to make ends meet. I mean, inflation has been uh, a big issue. I mean, this isn't Weimar, uh, Weimar Germany or you know Venezuela or something like that. But for decades, Americans have gotten used to a very low level of inflation, basically negligible. And even though wages haven't kept up at all, uh, you know, you, you know, you can kind of make ends meet a little bit now with inflation uh, as high as you know eight percent last year. I think it's down to five percent this year. But remember that compounds month after month, year after year, and some items like fuel, like food, like housing, things that affect everybody, things that don't, uh, you know, that everybody has to buy. Basically, th th those have seen even higher rates of inflation. So there's this there's this constant pressure and stress and strain on people. People try to put a good face on it. You know, uh, Americans are, uh, this is the country of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and uh, get on with it. But uh, it, little things are starting to crack here and there. And eventually, we're going to have a, a very big crack, such as we saw in the summer of 2020. That was just a glimpse of what's going to come at some point in, I think, the not too distant future. I mean, it's worth a podcast all of its own, the Black Lives Matter movement, which in that summer reached insurrectionary proportions, frankly. I mean, when you have a majority of Americans supporting the burning down of a police precinct, that support for an act of insurrection. I read some figures about the number of Americans who took part actively in these protests, and it's actually more widely across the political and demographic spectrum than you'd imagine. Uh, and it goes to show that there's such a depth of anger, there's such a wellspring of frustration, and obviously it finds its expression in relation to police violence, but it's connected to other things as well. It's connected to poverty, it's connected to a frustration with the political elites. I also wanted to come back to this question of Roe v. Wade and new attacks on civil liberties, attacks on abortion, because that's another wing of the establishment, aside from the, the political establishment and the police, the Supreme Court is revealing itself as part of a reactionary culture war, just another instrument in the hands of the ruling class used for divide and rule, used to stir the most reactionary ideas in society from the bottom. What's been the response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and an attempt to effectively ban abortion in a number of states. I mean, just to to go back to to the summer of 2020. I mean, that was the biggest, broadest movement in in the country. It wasn't just in the big cities. I mean, every single city, every town. I think in something like, you know, two or three thousand places, there were there was at least some kind of a protest. Uh, you know, it, it also broadly reflected the demographics of the country. It, it wasn't just a, a struggle by, you know, by young black people, for example. I mean, every layer of society uh, from every background came out in support of that. And obviously, that was in the middle of the pandemic. That was in the middle of, a, of an election campaign that was very bitterly contested uh, with Trump in power. And, uh, you know, people wanted to get him out. And uh, I, I mean, it, it was really an, an incredible experience to, to to live through that. Uh, and, but I think that's just the beginning of the beginning. Unfortunately, there was no revolutionary leadership that could guide all that energy into real transformative uh, 
uh, changes in this country. And so it got derailed into the election campaign, basically. But but nothing nothing has changed, and people understand that. And, uh, you know, it's one attack after another. It's not just racist police killings, like you said, but also this attack on, on what appeared to be a relatively basic right, the right to abortion. Um, it, it's now abortion is now illegal, completely illegal in about 14 states. It's uh, deeply restricted in other states. And the reason for this is that there is no federal law that covers the entire country that makes this uh, procedure uh, legal and available. Um, not to mention where it is available, it's expensive. Access is uh, difficult. I mean, it's uh, even where it's legal, it's it's not uh, it's not it's it's not an easy situation if if someone wants to uh, wants to get an abortion. Um, but uh, yeah, the reaction to that obviously th- there was protests. There was a lot of anger. Uh, some illusions that the Democrats would somehow you know, pass some law, which they never have, even when they've controlled both houses of Congress and the White House several times in the last few decades, they've never passed something like that, even though they had the votes to do it. Um, But uh, I I think, you know, the Supreme Court, which basically interprets the U.S. Constitution, which is the legal basis for for bourgeois rule in this country, has really taken a hit in the last period because, in part, because of these attacks on Roe v. Wade. I mean, uh, you know, it used to be able to pretend that it sort of stood above society, that it was impartial, that it was apolitical, that it was nonpartisan, that it really didn't uh, meddle with politics. It was just uh, a pure litmus test for legality based on this piece of paper, which was written uh, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, but the reality is, of course, that the decisions they take are clearly politically motivated. Uh, individual justices, I mean, they're all reactionary, but some of them are even more reactionary than the others. And and it's definitely taken a hit. You know, I think only uh, I think 63% of Americans now say that it is motivated more by politics than by by the law. And uh, that's a big change from just a few decades ago. Um, uh, another thing that happened recently, I don't know if you saw in the news, but Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, who's a real a real human piece of garbage, if I if I may say, uh, and his equally reactionary wife uh, Jeannie Thomas. Uh, it was recently revealed that they've been taking you know uh, luxury vacations with, with this billionaire Harlan Crow and a bunch of other major CEOs on private jets on yachts. Uh, they've been going to Indonesia, New Zealand, and Thomas claims that he didn't report any of these uh, trips because they were just merely pers- personal hospitality in uh, in his view. Uh, as it turns out, though. He actually had uh, Harlan Crow, the billionaire that he was accompanying, had business before the Supreme Court, uh, and that wasn't reported. There was also some real estate deals between Thomas and this billionaire, uh, which were not reported. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, another Supreme Court justice, uh, also had a, a big uh, a real estate sale where he, you know, he sold the property for two million dollars back in 2017. He didn't report that, uh, and all these things are supposed to be reported because, you know, potentially you might think that hanging out with billionaires uh, on on their dime might have an impact on uh, on your rulings. Uh, so all these little things are starting to undermine this institution, which by extension undermines confidence in the Constitution. And there's a lot of talk. You know, every, you know, every once in a while, but more than in the past, about constitutional crises. How do we resolve this? How can this piece of paper, which reflects a previous balance of forces, a previous class balance of forces in this country, how can that possibly be used to justify and and legitimize uh, the continuation of the domination of the of the U.S. ruling class? So, returning to Sleepy Joe Biden for a minute, 
we are gearing up for a new election cycle. I saw Ron DeSantis recently had his disastrous presidential or primary bid uh, launch courtesy of Elon Musk on barely functioning Twitter space. But can we draw a bit of a balance sheet of the first term of the Biden presidency? I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden has failed to meet even the low bar that was set for him by millions of Americans um, and the main section of the ruling class who invested some trust in him to restore stability. So where is the Biden presidency? What do Americans think about Joe Biden? And what can we expect in the next um, electoral cycle? Is Trump going to make a comeback? Um, Are the Democrats going to ditch Joe Biden in favor of someone else? What do you see happening in the next period on the political front? Well, yeah, we're, I mean, election 2024 is, is basically already beginning. Uh, it's, it's a long sort of endless cycle in this country. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been very disappointing, as you say, both for the bourgeois and for those who had uh, illusions in him. But let, let's remember, it's not it's not all his fault, uh, so to speak. He's he's a function of the system, a system that's in decay, that's economy is in crisis. Uh, U.S. imperialism as a world power has been undermined by by the decline in its economy. Uh, it's still a relative decline. It's still the most powerful imperialist force. But it's not necessarily the most powerful imperialist force in every part of the of the of the world. You know, globally it is, but not everywhere in the world, if if you know what I mean. And all these things ha- have an effect. I mean, the bottom line is people thought that he was going to uh, ha- have better jobs. You know, raise the minimum wage, protect uh, you know unions, make it easier to unionize. That was a uh, one big promise early on, the Pro Act, which uh, just you know sort of disappeared off the agenda. Any legislation that he's passed. For example, you know, infrastructure projects and so on, they all have huge private profits built into them. They all include concessions to, uh, you know, coal and and uh, gas and other pipelines and things like that. Uh, it, it's all part of the wheeling and dealing that they've had to do in order to, to get even, even that passed. So there's just a lot of disappointment. I mean, uh, you know, wages have not kept up with inflation, as we've seen. That's a, that's a huge one. Um, and, uh, you know, Biden's popularity rating has hovered around 40% for most of his presidency. That being said, the, you know, when you're in an unstable period, it's hard to hard to predict exactly who's going to win an election. Not a few, you know, not many years ago, it, you know, if the economy was going well, generally speaking, the incumbent would be in a, in a good position to win again. It's not so simple anymore. We saw in the midterm elections, for example, that despite Biden's low popularity ratings, despite the disappointment in in the Democrats, people still came out in just enough numbers to, uh, you know, to, to prevent a, a total rout of the Democratic Party and and stop this red wave, this Trumpite uh, wave that was supposed to come. Certain Trump candidates didn't, uh, Trump back candidates didn't do as well as they were expected to do. So it's a lot more complex than. Then uh, you know it's the it's the economy stupid as they used to say that that's your main indicator. If it was that simple, you could just track it to the stock market or GDP or whatever. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, will Donald Trump get in again? Obviously, he's been indicted uh, once already. There's several other uh, criminal cases being pursued against them. That wouldn't necessarily preclude him from uh, from uh, from running or from from winning even. But uh, but but those those are factors. 
his popularity uh, has been shaved off uh, at least a little bit, even among some of his hardcore supporters. I think uh, against Biden, either DeSantis or uh, Trump uh, would beat him if the election were held today. That's what the polls show. Uh, but we're still quite a long ways off from from election day, and uh, you know a, a lot can happen. I mean, uh, DeSantis. I mean, I think uh, some many some people in the ruling class think that he could be the sort of you know, Trumpism without Trump kind of candidate uh, or Trump light or something like that. But the reality is he's just as as uh, disgusting a person. His program is in many ways even more reactionary potentially because he he's he really is interested in, uh, as he calls it, leveraging uh, the U.S. Constitution to really ramp up the, the executive branch, the power of the executive branch to rule more by decree uh, and through, you know, repression from above versus uh versus the way things are now and his experiment of course has been in, in Florida the state where he's the governor um and he you know he, he's quite popular but but I don't know you can't count Trump out no matter what I mean he, he's he's pretty uh pretty resilient and he does have a pretty strong base of support one, one thing to point out though to remember is that Trump has never won a popular vote in a general election uh he lost in 2016 but because he won the electoral college by just around 80,000 votes in four states, he was able to become the president. But he again lost the popular vote and uh, the Electoral College vote in 2020. And, uh, you know, some people say that the, the the Democrats actually want Trump to be the candidate. They can rerun, you know, images from January 6th, uh, 2021 over and over. They can, they can, you know, call him a threat to democracy. And, and in a sense, they only have to shave off uh, a, a few thousand votes in a few states to to tip the balance once again back to the Democrats. So the Democrats they've decided that they're going to run Biden again along with Kamala Harris, uh, who is literally a heartbeat away from becoming president. Uh, I think they obviously think that having uh, a woman of color uh, as part of the ticket is going to be uh, one way to again use identity politics to try to justify lesser evilism one more time. But just uh, 32% of Americans polled think that Biden has the, quote, mental sharpness for a second term. Uh, and so that obviously includes a lot of Democrats who, who, are, who are not at all thrilled by, uh, by by this being the ticket. I mean, so you could have Biden-Trump 2.0, uh, which is, a, you know, could, could be a real uh, train wreck, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, I, I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think I think DeSantis does have a little bit of a chance. But the, the, the problem, uh, a, a chance to beat uh, Trump, we'll, we'll have to see. But one of the problems that faces both both uh, parties, but especially the Republicans this time around, is that in order to win their party's primaries, they're going to have to tack really far to the right to prove that they're the, uh, the most reactionary, that they're the most... Uh, you know, uh, you know, they're they're Trump more Trump than Trump himself, kind of thing. Yeah, you've seen DeSantis in particular really lean into the culture war, talking about going to war with and destroying leftism. Uh, you know, he's he's the anti woke uh, warrior. You know, uh, Florida is where woke comes to die. All this kind of stuff. I mean, again, th th this this liberal concept of wokeness, which basically just means you know being aware that there is oppression in this society. There's no revolutionary uh, solution for that oppression or anything to do that. But you should just be you know we should be uh, more aware of, of that. And so he he's obviously really tapped into this culture war, uh, using identity politics to, to really uh, attack that stuff. But by by doing that, 
it, it can potentially alienate that very narrow sliver of undecided voters in the so-called center uh, that they need to to win in the general election. So I, I, you know, I think the Democrats hope that the Republicans will just beat the crap out of each other in their primaries and caucuses. The, the one difference with DeSantis as well is that whereas Trump kind of steamrolled all the other candidates in, in the last few campaigns, uh, DeSantis is as combative and as uh, bold and confident as, as Trump. So, uh, you know, get out the popcorn if you want to see some sparks fly. Uh, but the bottom line is we have to be clear that neither of these candidates, none of these candidates, neither of these parties uh, represent the working class. The working class will not have a class independent party uh, candidate running for president in 2024. And therefore, the, the working class has already lost those elections. The only way that we're going to change the situation, and there's massive potential for uh, a new political party, for a mass workers party, a labor party, even for a socialist party. You know, we, we talked about some of the polling. It, it is if we break from the Democrats and the Republicans, we 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 stop this this rotten class collaboration that's going on. Uh, these illusions that the representatives of the enemy class can somehow uh, make things better for us, and and strike out on a class independent basis, uh, combining trade union struggle. Combining, uh, you know, the voting at the polls for class independent candidates, and uh, combining, you know, mass protests on the streets, and eventually general strikes, and so on, all the way up to the socialist revolution. You also saw the potential for a mass workers party or even a socialist party in the Sanders campaign. Sanders campaigns plural, actually, both times. We've commented many times, and I know the socialist revolution has published many articles going over the Sanders campaigns and how he marched the troops to the top of the hill and marched them down again, uh, led all of this enthusiasm and desire for change and anger against the billionaire class, as he put it, into the blind alley of the Democratic Party. But nevertheless, it goes to show the potential that exists if you had a genuine Labour Party, a genuine mass workers' party to tap into that mood. Um, and even though in 2020 voter participation was very high, which goes to show how polarized society was and the desperate desire by many to just be rid of Trump. It was very clear, even at the time, that a lot of people were holding their nose to vote for Biden. Yeah, I mean, the Sanders campaign, especially the 2016 campaign, you know, we, we have to give credit where credit is due, really put the, the question of socialism front and center in American politics in a way that perhaps it had never been done. I mean, in the past, it was always in a much more negative context. Here, he was able to uh, you know, awaken all this energy in this country, all this enthusiasm for a, a different way forward. But as we explained, you know, it was very unlikely that he was going to break from the Democrats. Obviously, you never know what any individual is going to do. Uh, we're not mind readers, but it's very unlikely that he was going to break with them. And in the end, he supported Hillary Clinton. And in the end, she was just narrowly defeated by Trump. Uh, in 2020, he definitely ran a much more sort of a modest campaign. I would say, but he had very good momentum again. Very, it was very close to winning, and all of a sudden, the—I mean—he was about to run away with the nomination uh, in, in terms of the primaries and caucuses, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of candidates drop out. They all decide that the guy who was in fourth or fifth place in the polls, uh, Joe Biden, was all of a sudden the greatest thing since sliced bread, and he—he he was to be the anointed one. Uh, and the whole media, all the all the other, you know, all the other candidates, basically went behind Joe Biden in order to to block uh, to block Sanders. It would have been really interesting to see a Sanders versus Trump campaign. I think it's very possible that Sanders could have won. Now, obviously, 
without being a, a genuine revolutionary Marxist, without being, uh, you know, uh, under the control of a, of, a, of, a, of a party and a membership and, and, and committed to a definite program that was determined by that membership and so on, by still being a part of the Democratic Party. Obviously, I don't think we would have had a, you know, a socialist revolution uh, led by, by Bernie Sanders, but it certainly would have opened up a lot of dynamics, a lot of different contradictions, and, and really accelerated this process. Instead, by, by backing the, uh, the, the, the status quo candidate, he, he really you know, tamped things down. We had, we had similar experience with uh, the with DSA. DSA, which got, uh, was basically the beneficiary of all the dissatisfaction with Clinton being the uh, the candidate, uh, you had a bunch of Bernie bumps, if you will, where people, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people went into DSA. Unfortunately, they didn't use that energy to to push for anything uh, independent. They basically continued to stick to the old idea that uh, you know they've got to so, somehow push the Democrats to the left. But what we've seen with every single DSA backed candidate who's been elected to Congress or to any other position, far from pushing the Democrats to the left, they themselves have been sucked right into the the swamp of that party and have, have given it left cover. So I, I agree the potential is massive. I mean, it's just like a like a, a, a strike. I mean, one successful strike in this country can unleash uh, you know, you know, a torrent of strike activity. One big successful militant class struggle strike. Same thing goes for for this. If you have, uh, you know, someone coming out and saying, you know, a, a major labor leader, for example, saying, okay, enough is enough. We're gonna uh, we're gonna stop pouring millions of dollars into into these parties and especially the Democrats. We're gonna put it in our own members' interest. We're gonna run our own candidates, even if. They're not going to win the presidency right away, just to lay the foundations for for future campaigns. Uh, but unfortunately, we just don't see that happening right now. The real task of, of revolutionary Marxists in this country isn't so much to go out and try to build this future mass party, but to prepare the, the, the caters, the cadre, however you want to pronounce it, uh, for the Marxist caters who are going to understand uh, theory, who are going to understand the, the program we're fighting for, who are going to learn the methods of Bolshevism uh, in order to be able to go into that process when it does eventually, inevitably, start to kick up the creation of this party in some form or another, get in there and fight for a revolutionary Marxist program. I'll let you get away with cadre since you're our guest, even though it is Cater. Full disclosure: I, I, I'm a cater guy myself. I was uh, I, I first joined the tendency in Britain, but I've got to try to adapt adapt well, to we the locals here. That. That's very accommodating. So, <laughs> moving away from the domestic situation for a moment, let's talk about America on the world stage, because I think, in the same way that the 2008 crash and its ramifications, obviously exacerbated by COVID, which hit America very hard, which we haven't even talked about, that. I think was a turning point in terms of people's confidence in the American economy. But as far as America as an imperial power in the last period, the retreat from Afghanistan was clearly a significant blow. Um, and now um, the US is knee deep in the Ukraine war. It's proxy war um, on Ukrainian soil against Russia with an eye on China, of course. The Pentagon leaks um, finding their way into Discord servers populated by gamer nerds, uh, thanks to one poor dumb kid who's now in jail for God knows how long, revealed the extent to which American imperialism is tied up in Ukraine, the, the, the wealth of weapons, the logistical support it provides. And I think that in the last couple of years, we've seen the difficulty 
that American imperialism has had in imposing its will on the world stage in the way that it has done in the past. So can we talk about the diminished position of American imperialism? Sure. I mean, like, like I said, it's a relative decline. I mean, the US still spends more on so-called defense than the next nine countries combined. It's over $800 trillion were budgeted for, for this year alone. I mean, that's a, an eye-watering amount of money that could pay for you know, how many homes and, and teachers and, and schools and so on. Um, but uh, but as we said, it's it just, it can't project that power like it used to. And uh, my sense is that under the Obama um, administration, they were trying to rebalance things a little bit. And, and the big rebalancing is basically, they, they've got to lean a little bit more on friendly regional powers to, to sort of do their bidding for them while they shift gears towards the Pacific and towards China in particular. I mean, that that is the big, um, the, the big you know, the, as they said, geopolitical strategic uh, uh, threat that, uh, that, that, that U.S. imperialism confronts. And uh, in the South Pacific, of course, now, China is, is probably in some areas, most definitely the, the strongest uh, power, imperialist power in that particular region. It is obviously sending you know forces and, and feelers and above all uh you know exporting capital to other parts of the world as well but the but the pacific is really important i mean that's where so much of the manufacturing happens in in uh, in china itself in japan and south korea and elsewhere uh lots of raw materials come from places like australia i mean all that comes in into this country from uh, from the pacific coast on the west coast uh of this country so it's, it's it's really important that the united states really assert itself but now they've got kind of sucked into this uh this thing with the ukraine uh war this proxy war this inter-imperialist proxy war where they've decided that they, they they've got a good chance to grind down uh regional russian imperialism and potentially if they keep dragging things out to to getting rid of putin and trying to get someone a little more amenable to their interests in uh in, in into the kremlin well, John, this has been a really interesting discussion, and I'm sure we could go on for hours. But just to start to bring this to a conclusion, I wanted to get your opinion on a very interesting book title that I saw written by a guy called Stephen March. And the book is called The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future. And it was published last year. There have been a number of articles in some of the serious bourgeois American papers as well, like the New York Times, for example, that make reference to a new American civil war. Why is it that the American ruling class seem to be afraid of the prospect of a new civil war in the USA? And are they right to be afraid? Well, you know, they've unleashed forces uh, of, of polarization. They've accelerated that process. They've tried to create this sort of uh, dichotomy in the country, this sort of uh, a new a new sectionalism, if you will. You used to have sort of the East Coast versus the interior. Then it was mainly the, the North versus the South. And uh, and then it went back to the East Coast versus the interior, uh, newer states versus older states. And so now it's kind of a, a rural versus urban kind of a, a division that they're trying to, to push through this culture war stuff, you know, different values, different music different clothing, 
uh, all this kind of stuff. But the big part of the tradition of this country is violence and guns. I mean, that's, that's just the fact. I mean, the, the mass shootings are, are shocking. They're, they're a symptom of a society in decay and decline uh, and, and this alienation between people that you can actually go and shoot children in a school. But uh, but this country has always been violence. I mean, this country was conquered by violence. This country has been through uh, two revolutions, the first American Revolution and then the, the, the Civil War. Um that uh, that ended slavery, and so they, of course, tried to strip any revolutionary elements from from actual revolutions from from uh, from from the story, and and just focus on on the negatives, on the scary, on on people turning on each other and killing each other. I mean, gun sales have gone through the roof over the last few years. A lot of people say specifically, it's not just about security and safety and street violence. Uh, uh, in general, but you know, in preparation for you know some sort of a bigger uh, clash, some bigger confrontation. Um, but uh, but 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 I, but I think look, every civil war is ultimately a war between classes, and how violent it is, how chaotic it is, how prolonged it is, really depends on on on, on political questions and on ultimately on leadership. And if the American working class, if if uh, the labor leaders. And uh, all the you know millions of ununionized workers got together and launched uh, you know a workers party. Uh, I mean, we're the vast majority in this country. There needn't be violence at all. I mean, w- w- literally. I mean, the, the, the only violence I think really that would come would be instigated by a minority of people who you know just hate communism <laughs> uh, t- to death, or or who just uh, have a real stake. In, in in this current society and they want to see its uh continuation um it, that is if we were all organized and armed and so on but in the absence of that in the answer in the in the absence of a, a clear class independent way forward uh people get all caught up in, in in this question of like individual groups of people going out and and shooting each other i mean the the the, the polarization is real as we've said i mean four, four years ago with trump in power 80% of Americans said that tolerance for others was important. Now it's just 58%. That's a that's a big decline of people who think you shouldn't, uh, you know, you need to quote unquote tolerate other people, uh, and 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 they're willing to, to take up arms against each other. So I think they're I think what they it really is a part of the scaremongering on behalf of of the ruling class on the on the. On the Republican side, they're basically saying, "Oh, the liberals want to come take your guns." Uh, on the on the on the, the Democratic side, people like Robert Reich uh, are saying, "Oh, well, you know, Trump is a proto-fascist, and and and, and we've got to defend against that." And it's it's a, it's a doom and gloom scariness to again to justify lesser evilism. You know, if you don't want that, then then vote for us. We'll take care of it in Congress and in the White House and so on. But um, I mean, I, I think eventually, ultimately, there probably there will be a third revolution in this country, and that will be a, a third civil war. I mean, the American Revolution was definitely uh, just as much a civil war as a revolution, um, and obviously, the Civil War we call it a civil war because it was it was very clearly clearly that. So I think, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I don't think it's something to be scared of. I think it's the fact that the, it's a it's a reflection of the fact that they are not confident in uh, their ability to hold things together, and. You know, history shows that when a central government can't uh, offer solutions to problems, when it can't uh, provide a good quality of life for everybody, when it can't provide stability, you'll have a fracturing of the population. You'll have people losing confidence in in that central government and those institutions and looking towards others and towards other methods for getting their problems solved. 
obviously the ballot box hasn't worked very much. Uh, frankly, even strikes and 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 uh, and unionization drives haven't led to a huge improve uh, improvement in the quality of life uh, for people who do who do go into those uh, those kinds of struggles. So people are looking to to other other alternatives. And of course, one classic alternative going all the way back to antiquity is uh, the strongman, Bonapartism, you know, populism. Uh, and and we're we're seeing this. You see DeSantis and Trump really trying to pump themselves up as the the strong person who's going to punish the bad guys, the enemies, uh, the bad hombres, as, uh, as Trump once said, and is going to make all your wildest dreams come true and make America great again. But, um, you know, obviously, we in the IMT, we in, in the U.S. section uh, and in our magazine and in our web, on our website, Socialist Revolution, we think that the only way to make the entire world great for, for the first time truly ever is through the socialist revolution, the socialist transformation of the entire planet. And obviously, as the working class in the belly of the beast, the US workers have an outsized importance in terms of winning that socialist future for the whole of the world. Um, I want to quickly plug a podcast series that John did previously on the American Civil War or the Second American Revolution, more correctly. It's very good, so I'll link it in the description of this episode. It gives a bit of context to what we've been talking about. And I'll say thank you very much for joining us, John. Um, I hope that listeners have enjoyed this discussion as much as I have, and long live the Third American Revolution, which, of course, must be the American Socialist Revolution. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and uh, I look forward to future podcasts. Congratulations on this. It's been a, it's been a really big success. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news theory and analysis and if you've been inspired by what you've heard today get in touch via our website marxist.com and find out more about how you can join the international marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are